Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Thanks, Johnny. It, it, it is a great joy. It really is a great joy for me to be here and to have the privilege to open to you the scriptures. As I was saying, I think yesterday, my, my expectations are that I am not simply teaching God's word. The expectations are that Christ himself, by the Holy Spirit, speaks through the scriptures. As he brings us into his body in baptism, the means, primary means through which he disciples us is through his word as it is communicated in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are looking at 1 John as we have been doing um, over this past week and maybe you would like to turn to 1 John in your Bibles just now. I know all of you have had the experience of of being in a community, in a fellowship, in a church where one or two people have read a book or they've gone to a conference and they have seen something they've never seen before and they reckon this is it. They now have the knowledge. And it's not long before a little clique is formed in that church of those who seem to have superior insight than anybody else. Or, Or some folks have gone and they have received a special experience. And and they even have a theology to describe it, and a clique is formed within that community that reckons everybody else ought to have the same experience as they have had. Well, in Ephesus, where, where John, approaching his death, was confronted by such a phenomena, it was more difficult than that. That in itself is a pastoral challenge. But the difficulty was that these characters who were claiming to have the gnosis, as we call it, the knowledge, because they were Gnostics, were teaching things that were heretical, contrary to the truth of God as it was revealed in Jesus Christ. As I've sought to explain, they they, they had a view that the material world in which we live is inherently, essentially bad. But everybody has the spark of the divine, the seed, they call it. And what happened was that in this moment of encounter, the seed was released from the material that is their flesh. They experienced the divine, and they had this mystical encounter that they called the gnosis. Well, there was a twofold implication for it in terms of the heresy that was being propounded in the church in Ephesus. One was that because what they did in the body was not important, it was evil anyway, they had been released from that. The ethical consequences meant that it didn't matter what they did. There was ultimately no practice of what is right or wrong, but even more significant, and that is our primary theme this morning, even more important, They believed it was impossible for God, the ineffable, eternal creator God, it was impossible for God to take upon himself human flesh, which was inherently bad. 
So as I've described it, Jesus may have looked like a man, he may have behaved like a man, he may have talked like a man, but it only, he only appeared to be a man. He was not bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And therefore, the Christ of God was not the Lord, whom we worship as our Savior and Redeemer. Will you turn to chapter 2 and verse 18? John writes, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. This is God's holy and powerful word. For John, this is the last hour. It's amazing, isn't it, that in spite of the clear teaching of Jesus, that, that no one knows the day or the hour. It's not for us to know the times and the dates the Father has set by his, authority, by his own authority. In spite of the clear teaching of Christ, the church consistently engages in a level of speculation that is quite staggering. And over the past 50 to 60 years, in the evangelical church, it has become an industry. Uh, the Bible is treated like a tarot card, uh, rather like the Da Vinci Code, you're looking for mystic numbers. It's a crystal ball in which you can gaze into and project on the basis of charts that you have created in terms of Gog and Magog and Daniel's little horn and his ten feet and what it represents. In all of those often strange, strange pictures we have in the apocalyptic books in Daniel and the book of the Revelation. And the tragedy is that in the United States of America, under Trump and specifically under the influence of Vice President Pence, American foreign policy is being governed by much of this speculative prophetic theology in terms of Armageddon and what will take place in Israel. It has fed an industry, I said, not least in the making of movies, like the omen, the rapture, and left behind. And people have, have told us who, who the Antichrist is at various times. Um, it was Hitler because of he treated of his Jews. It was Mussolini because he was in, in Italy and followed the successors of, of the Roman empires. 
was Mikhail Gorbachev, God bless him, because he had the mark of the beast on his forehead. Saddam Hussein, because he was seeking to resurrect Babylon. And so it goes on and on and on in a vain speculation. Well, this perspective, of course, was somewhat changed um, in terms of how people perceive the future, really because of what happened in Dublin. In Powers Court, if you visit Dublin, you need to come to Powers Court. It's a beautiful building. Uh, Lady Powers Court ran these amazing prophetic conferences at the end of the 19th century. And when people spoke of Antichrist up until then, they, they often thought of the Pope. And that did not start with the reformers, in spite of what you might think. Uh, that, in, in fact, started with the Cistercians in the 12th century by a guy called Joachim Fiore, who believed in his interpretation of the Bible that there were three eras, and at the last era there would be an era that would ultimately lead to, to peace, shalom, in which Antichrist was overcome, and they were present at that stage. And because of the moral decadence and corruption of the Vatican and the papacy, uh, Joachim reckoned the Pope was the Antichrist. And what is amazing to many today is it was Francis of Assisi who took this up because of his commitment to poverty. He was shocked at the wealth and status of what was taking place under the Curia, that he too joined in, arguing passionately that the Pope was the Antichrist. So it ought not to surprise us when it got to the Reformation and the polemics of the 16th and then the 17th century that the Pope was so classified. Well, in terms of the last days, it's amazing. It seems to me that, that people really fall into two categories. They are their optimists or optimists or pessimists. Now, I have to tell you, I'm a sort of gregarious, extroverted individual who, who is very optimistic. My, my, John, my friend John Woodside once said publicly at an event, morrow he would see hope in hell. <laughs> that is not strictly true, but I have an optimistic perspective. But there are some who are pessimists who reckon things are getting worse and worse and they're going to deteriorate. If you want to know the difference between an optimist and a pessimist, it's like this. There was a, parents who had twin boys and one of them was pessimistic and one was optimistic and they decided to play a trick on them at Christmas. And, and on, on Christmas morning, for the pessimist, they gave them this, gave them this fantastic computer with endless megabytes and all these games. But of course, as soon as it arrived, it didn't have enough megabytes. All the games they wanted were not there. It was the wrong color. There was just an endless list of complaints about this computer. But they had given to the optimistic boy just a box of manure. And he came running in to his daddy and says, Daddy, Daddy, I haven't found it yet, but I know I've got a pony. The optimistic view in terms of the end times is that, is that essentially Christ from his position of authority will reign until he has brought all his enemies under his feet. That is part of the mission we call an extension of Christ's church. And that the passages like in Matthew 24 or Mark 13 is essentially about the destruction of Jerusalem. 
and the expectations of those who are optimists is, is rather like the, the hymn writers of the 18th century who were pre predominantly optimistic, like Isaac Watts. When he was writing those great missionary hymns, I mean, there, there was the expansion of the church, certainly in, in, into the New World among some of the Native Americans. Some Hottentots may have been converted in, in, in Southern Africa through the Huguenots and the Dutch Reformed. Uh, they didn't know much about what was going on in India and in the Middle East. But Isaac Watts was able to write, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore, his rule shall reign forevermore. That, you know, that's an optimist, you see. I was raised in optimistic singing of Scottish metrical psalms and of paraphrases. Some of you will remember, Behold the mountain of the Lord in latter days shall rise. One of that great missionary hymns that we don't sing anymore, which was, of course, the interpretation of Isaiah 2. That's the optimist. But predominantly within the church is a pessimistic view, I have to tell you, among evangelicals, that things are getting worse. We are deteriorating. It must be the end times. We're looking signs of, of, of what, of doom that is about to appear. And so for you look for the red, blue, the red, the blood moons, of course. And, 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 and anything that you can possibly put your hands on will, will predict that these are the last days and things are going to get worse and worse and there's going to be a terrible tribulation for, the, for God's people until Jesus comes. Well, that's the optimistic and pessimistic view, and if you think I'm going to deal with that this morning, except by making reference to it, I'm not. I don't think that would be profitable for us. What I want us to see here is that John, he's a realist. This is the last hour. The spirit of Antichrist is already present, because these, as I called them, proto-Gnostics, that is Gnosticism in its experimental stage in the first century. These proto-Gnostics were characterized by moral decadence, by elitism, they were divisive, but even more than that, and this is more serious, they had denied that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. They were denying that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, we looked on the first day at how this great heresy in the church keeps repeating itself. It, it, it of course, reached its zenith in the second century, where all these various Gnostic gospels appeared. But it repeats itself over and over and over again in the Christian church. And in society at large, we are confronted with it in terms of a contemporary spirituality in the West. Where at times people can combine a desire to, to, to relate to that which is other, to something that is divine and ineffable, but yet without any ethical responsibility whatsoever. And even within the contemporary church, it seems that God is in Christ no longer the head, He's no longer the source of our life. He is a resource. So I, I talk to people in church, and well, they, they engage with crystals, and they have reflexology, and they, and they meditate, and they're into Jesus. It's another commodity, another resource. 
to help us to become what we want to be, to be at peace, to have peace and prosperity and happiness. And, and there, are some, there are some very effective writers, like Deepak Chopra, he's sort of guru for this group. He combines Vedic Hindu teaching with the karma, with self-deification, all packaged for the West, and people have embraced this even some who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Now, let me say from the outset that if there was no truth at all in what these characters said, no one would believe any of it. There is value. There is insights. There are aspects of what they do that is incredibly helpful. I love to get my feet done in reflexology. Does that shock you? I, just lo I usually fall asleep during it, I have to tell you. The mechanics, of course, is not the problem. But if we believe that all truth is, God, is God's truth, and that truth has been supremely re revealed in the flesh in Jesus Christ, everything changes. It is Christ-like spectacles we have put on through which we see all of reality. It is how we discern and glean the truth that will set us set us free. Let me just remind you that there were, there were prophets in the early church, men and women who spoke with extraordinary authority. I say amazing authority because the Apostle Paul says the church was built upon the apostles and the prophets. They did not have the text of scripture of the New Testament that we have today. Prophetic ministry in the church, oral communication was extremely important. And this oral communication was communicated by men and women. The daughters of Philip, for example. Women were exercising this powerful prophetic ministry upon which the church is built. Now the congregations were small. They were isolated, meeting in homes. They may have had portions of scripture. They, they probably had most of John's gospel in terms of the community in Ephesus. But the problem was that some of these prophets were noble and godly, but some were charlatans. Some were perverse. So what John is saying, you know, they can talk and walk and behave like a prophet, but not be a prophet at all. Because everything that is supernatural or appears to be divine is not necessarily of God. You and I have been confronted with the reality of the demonic. Bishop Henry spoke about how in Africa it seems to be much more overt but you and I encounter it in a much more subtle way. Even those of us who are the followers of Christ, who know our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, but there are occasions when, when thoughts and attitudes are, are imposed upon us that come from without. I don't think they come from within. That shock us. That, that we could think like that. For me, for me, that is the reality of the demonic. 
that we encounter almost on a daily basis because we are wrestling not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers. And, and they engage in, in supernatural activity. What I'm going to say now might sound like a criticism of, of, of the charismatic movement or, or of Pentecostalism. I assure you it is definitely not for two very simple reasons. Uh, one is my ministry in Dublin would not be what it is today without the charismatic renewal movement. So many of the leaders of our church came to faith in Jesus Christ through charismatic renewal. My Barnabas that God gave to me when I went to, to Lucan 34, almost 35 years ago, was a Catholic priest. I remember so well, I, I had come from, from, from Hamilton Road here down to Lucan and I hadn't a baldy notion, really. That's what happens when you begin in mission. You don't know what you're doing. You don't even know how to relate or approach these various people. And, and there I'd come as an Ulster prod in, into Lucan that was 98% Roman Catholic where the Irish National Liberation Army was founded. Really? What would I know as a Presbyterian minister? And, and so I went to a local school, Colostakiran, uh, where there was a Catholic chaplain. And to my amazement, this is only my second week, he, he gives me a cup of coffee and he proceeds to give me his testimony of how he was converted one good Friday, which may shock some of you in front of a crucifix, because he realized for the first time what God had done for him in Jesus Christ to take away his sins and to totally forgive him. He became involved in the charismatic renewal movement and, and, and he, came, he said to me, you know, we, we shared so much in common. He came to my door uh, two days later and he said, Trevor, you and I share something in common I can't even share with some of my fellow priests. Could we meet together? Wow, this is my Barnabas God has sent to me. And every Monday at four o'clock, Father Dermot O'Gorman from the Sacred Heart Order met with this Presbyterian who was raised in the sound of lambeg drums. And we shared the gospel. We, we, we prayed together, and it was through charismatic renewal. Folks, I, I, this is not a criticism of charismatic renewal or, or of the Pentecostal movement or what I'm going to say. My very first youth, young boy, in our, our fellowship in Lucan, um, he was only, I think, 14 at the time, had just come to faith. And, and Sean brought so many of his friends from the Christian Brothers School into our fellowship to attend regularly every week, Bible studies, all sorts of amazing things. And Sean is now the pastor of the largest Pentecostal church in Dublin and one of my closest friends. You understand, this is not a criticism, but I am so concerned that people are deceived by what is bizarre and weird and outrageous and is being done in the name of the gospel. I recognize that in times of great spiritual awakening, odd and strange things happen. And I, I am open to that. I'm really open to God. Whatever he wants to do, he can do his own thing, his own way. But in terms of the emphasis 
of seeking to discern what is happening at this present time, really? Is, is leg stretching really that important? And people will come and tell me and say they've had this amazing experience. They watched people as, as gold fillings went into people's mouths. Really? People are lost without God and without hope. And this is God's ministry? I, I, was, I was invited to an event of laughing prophets. I, I, I'm, I'm not laughing here. I'm not joking. This is true. This was a laughing prophet. He couldn't prophesy unless he laughed. Really? It was just hysteria. It was madness. That is why what we're going to read now is of such importance to us in terms of assessing whether or not we are the followers of Christ. It's number it's chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, if you'd like to turn to that just now. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. God's word. We have sought to demonstrate in our exposition of 1 John that John establishes the threefold criteria as to whether or not you are truly a child of God, whether you truly know God, whether you are children of light, children of the age which is to come. They're all based on the character of God. God is light. And therefore those who walk in the light will seek to live a life of holiness and obedience. That's the first mark. The second is that God is love, and it's a matter, as I described it, of cause and effect. Because God is love, and if we have been drawn by him and constrained by his spirit, to, then we will love one another. That's the second mark. And the third, because God who is light and God who has love has revealed himself supremely in Jesus Christ in the flesh, then the evidence that we are the children of God is that we will confess openly that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the threefold criteria. We can test ourselves. We can test others. This is the basis upon which we can assess whether or not we are part of the community of faith and can attain the full assurance of faith. These are the tests that are given to us 
as we test the spirit. Now, now, it's so important to do this because 22 times, do you realize that 22 times in the New Testament, you're asked to test the spirit. And at this point in the letter, John gives a twofold test and a twofold safeguard. The first test, which you get in verse 2 and 3, is, is the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Now, as I say, these new, these proto-Gnostics Gnostics at Ephesus, uh, they did not believe that God had come in the flesh in Jesus Christ. I, I referred to this nemesis of, of John, who was Corinthes. And Corinthes believed that, that, that the divinity came upon Jesus at his baptism. At that moment of, of, of the coming of the Holy Spirit, he received the divine, but it left him at his death. So that in the Gnostic Gospel of Peter, Jesus hanging on the cross crying, my power, my power, why have you forsaken me? Who is this Jesus? A true child of God who has the spirit of Christ, who has received the life from the God who is light and love, confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Increasingly, we realize that we're living, as we call it, in this expression in a global village. As I've said, my congregation in Lucan before I left had some 27 nationalities from every continent on the planet, except the Antarctic. We didn't have penguins, but we had people from all over the world. It was a thrilling thing to be there. According to the latest statistics from Dublin, there are more Muslims in Dublin than there are Presbyterians and Methodists combined. We have decent Muslim neighbors, I want to tell you that, just lovely, lovely people who I enjoy being with. I have the privilege of, of interacting with the Jewish rabbi, and we do live increasingly in a pluralistic, multicultural society. But in terms of what we are asked to do in this era of post-enlightenment, we, we, we live in, in, in what Leslie Newbegin, who was a great missiologist, described as an era of brand loyalty. It's almost like what shop you shop in, Tesco's or Sainsbury's or Super Value. And some go to the Krishna shop and, and some go to the Buddha shop and some go to the Allah shop, and some go to the Jesus shop. And, and it's okay as long as you all go to your own shop. And, and that's your brand loyalty. And what is completely unacceptable is any level of competition or arrogance that would, that would claim to assume that you would say that you might be right and someone else is wrong. That is politically incorrect. Completely incorrect. Completely unacceptable within our culture. So that people are happy to say that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Folks won't object to that. I, I do admire Leslie Newbegin. He insisted that the World Council of Churches change its confession of faith. And he pushed them and pushed them until they did. 
because they had that they believed that Jesus Christ was our Lord and Savior. No, no, says Newbegin, he is not our Lord and Savior. He is the Lord and Savior. If God has come in the flesh, he is Lord, you see. Whatever our response and reaction to others might be, it is on that basis. I, I discovered very soon that, that folks, Roman Catholic folks don't sing in, in Mass. They just don't. Uh, they find it really odd when they come into a Protestant service, everybody's singing, and they think they just sing and sing and sing. You know, it's really odd to them. The only time they seem to sing is, is at as at midnight mass on Christmas Eve. And they all join in. Now, it may have been that of a jar or two before they got there. I'm not quite sure. But they all seem to sing, and they sing, you know, Venite adoremos, venite adoremos, venite adoremos. Domino. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. It is the fundamental confession of our faith. And the mark of those, and the test that we have for those who have the spirit of Christ, both in ourselves and in those that we are observing, can they confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord? That's the first test. And the second test, and here we are examining and testing those who claim to be the prophets of God, what does the world think of them? Look at verse 5. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. Now, now, I have to tell you, one of the great challenges we have, and, and commentators recognize this, when you're handling First John, is that John uses the word world in two different ways, not just in the Gospels and in these letters, but in the, in the letter itself. Sometimes he refers to the world in a benign fashion, almost in a positive sense that God loves the world, but the plan of God is not to condemn the world, but to save the world, and then he uses it in a malign fashion as that which is under the forces, the powers of darkness, under the prince of evil, and that which is subtly seeking to undermine the faith of God's people. Now it's in the latter sense he is using it here. These super hyper spiritual people we call Gnostics, you see, were honored in the religious culture of that time because they made no exclusive claims about Jesus as the Christ. They were totally acceptable. What has happened to us, of course, as those who are followers of Jesus Christ, we are the product of the Enlightenment, which, in terms of its impact upon us in our thinking, people want to squeeze us more and more into a tiny little corner so that those of us who believe, it's only to do with something that we have chosen, that we like, that we find helpful and beneficial, and it's rather like somebody who, like me, just adores Haagen-Dazs butter can ice cream. And people are into Jesus. And that's fine. And that is the product of the Enlightenment. Where as long as it's private and personal and individual 
and a little group of people are willing to hold on to it. No one will, will be offended or hurt by that. But you cannot read the Acts of the Apostles. You cannot read the letters of the Apostle Paul without seeing that there is a fundamental clash of empires in terms of the understanding of the gospel and of the implications of the Lordship of Christ. It is between Christ and Caesar. That is why the Christians, by their very presence, were a threat. Because they would not honor the Lordship of Christ. I did a conference, I think it was three years ago, with Bishop Nazar Ali in Scotland on why Christians are persecuted. We, we discovered there are multiple reasons for this. One, of course, is because of the fall that we... We who are in rebellion against God, when we are confronted by himself uh, in the natural order and, and among God's people, we seek to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and, and take an aspect of the created order and deify it and, and elevate it and engage in idolatry. That is our natural response, so we are threatened by this. Of course, one of the reasons is because of the diabolical, perverse elements of the forces of darkness that are at work. But, but one of the practical reasons is that we are functioning with a different narrative, a different story of what is, of the world, of why we are as we are, of what's necessary for redemption, of who we owe our primary allegiance to. There is a clash of empires. Because if you are under the lordship of Christ and you recognize him as king above all others, no decision of a state, of a government, of any people, whether it's the minority, elite, or the majority, you are not subject to them. And they are threatened by that. This has been part of our Christian witness right down through the years. In the 17th century, there was one guy who I've come to admire greatly, a man called Samuel Rutherford from Scotland. And he was confronted by this clash of empires slightly differently in that the monarch claimed the divine right of kings. Remember that? Where, where they could control and govern according to their decrees. And people had to subject themselves to it. And, and, and Samuel Rutherford wrote this classic work called Lex Rex, where, where the law is king. Even the monarch is subject to the law, the objective moral law of God. All of us are subject. But, but you see, that's a clash of empires. That's like Caesar and Christ. That is why we find ourselves increasingly under pressure as we bear witness to Jesus Christ, not as something private, not as something individualistic, not as something that if you believe in it, you'll go to heaven when you die. But if it's about the rule of Christ, about the establishment of his kingdom, you are in conflict with the principalities and powers because, brothers and sisters, you are part of a subversive movement. Do you realize that? Mission is subversive. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And we've begun to taste something of it within our culture, but let me get things in perspective here. What we have experienced in terms of the legislation and the actions that are being taken occasionally by government is minimal in comparison to the suffering church around the world. It is practically nothing. 
were our brothers and sisters because they have embraced Christ as the Lord. He is number one in all that they seek to do. In spite of them being respectful and gracious and loving and sensitive and compassionate within their cultures, they are being persecuted and imprisoned and put to death for the gospel. You see, in the West, the prophets who are honored and those who minimize the exclusivity of our faith, someone like the Dalai Lama, they are honored. That's how you know this is false. While those of us who seek to be faithful to the gospel are classified with radical Islam, and some would seek to legislate in, in Parliament that anyone who makes truth claims are conducting hate crimes against other faiths. That's the reality in which we live. I was ministering in Melbourne in Australia a few years ago for a few months in the Scots Church and, and the, the minister was invited to a conference on witnessing to Muslims. And at, this event, at, at that event, there was a Muslim plant. He was there specifically to gather material and to listen to what was being said. He, he took the tapes, he took the material, and the result was that the pastors who organized the conference were arrested and charged in court on similar legislation to that of the incitement to religious hatred bill because it was said to be an offense to Islam to speak about the Quran in negative terms and to seek to convert someone who held the Islamic faith to the Christian faith. We're talking about Australia here. We're not talking. We're not talking about Eritrea or India. And these two men in the state of Victoria were found guilty. So you can understand the fears of Christians if they were forbidden by law to do what is of the essence of our faith, which is to engage in mission. Folks, mission is not an option to us, you see. We are kingdom people. We are Jesus people. It is not an alternative. It's not a side interest for us. This is who we are. And we will, we will suffer. Well, what I'm referring to, and I will close shortly, this is, this is one of the greatest challenges facing us today. I think you realize that. Here in, in, in Ireland, north and south and around the world, the definition of what constitutes a tolerant, multi-faith, multicultural society makes mission by its nature politically incorrect. We are simply politically incorrect. It's a potentially explosive issue for us, not just in our relationships with civil society, but also within the church itself, because I recognize that there will be different emphasis as to how we are to handle this in terms of our interaction of people of different faiths and none. I, I stand back in wonderment as how God fulfills his mission in the world, and it's not easily packaged at times. I'm one of those people who believe that all infants dying in infancy are redeemed through Jesus Christ. But they've never responded. They've never exercised faith. 
They've never believed. How does he do it? I leave that in the hands of God. I know he does it no other way but through Jesus Christ. We hear stories at events like this of, of so many Muslims coming to faith. How do they come to faith? Well, I remember my brother Merrill, who worked in a man in Jordan for much of his ministry, would say he hardly met a Muslim who hadn't come to faith through a vision where they see Jesus and he communicates somehow with them apart from the scriptures even. So God is doing extraordinary things. You all know the stories of people who've gone into various tribes and to the amazement of those who are communicating the gospel that there are parallel stories to the gospel within that culture that creates an enormous bridge apart from which the gospel could not be communicated. This is the mysterious work of God in his providence. What I'm trying to say to you, however we articulate it, however we express it, are those who are committed to the mission of God. What cannot be questioned as followers of Christ who stand under the authority of God's word, however gracious and civil we might be, and in defiance of the world, what we cannot change is that Jesus is the Christ who took flesh and blood and uniquely is the Savior of the world. Upon this we stand, and brothers and sisters, from this we dare not move. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Well, this is how we test the Spirit. And, and briefly, he, he, gives, he gives two safeguards. The first safeguard is that in our confession, we must conform to the original message that we have received. Look at verse 24 of chapter 2. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. And verse 6 of chapter 4 we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. What, what, we, what, what John is saying is, what is essential for our understanding and as a safeguard for our faith is to ensure that what we bear witness to and what we understand is what we have received from the beginning, from those apostles who have been appointed by Christ to communicate the faith. It is why we have the, the New Testament as our and with the old as our only infallible rule of faith and practice. It's why, too, the creeds have, have been developed, like the Apostles' Creed. It's, it's the means through which we can publicly express the faith that has been handed on down to us as an anchor. It is classic Christianity. It's the first safeguard. And the second is what he refers to as the anointing, the chrism, the Holy Spirit, you see it in verse 20, verse 21, verse 27. You have received the Spirit of Christ. You have received the Spirit of truth. What, what, of course, John is referring to here is the classic understanding that we receive the Word, which is the classic statement of the Gospel, and we receive the Spirit, and they are to be inseparable. And when the Spirit comes with the Word, it witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. It brings us to the assurance of faith. 
It is what John Calvin calls the testimonium spiritus sancti. It is the internal witness of the Holy Spirit that confirms that this is the truth of who Jesus is. And is it true, Sir John Betjeman? And is it true? And is it true this most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall, the maker of the stars and sea, to come a child on earth for me. Will you please stand? We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.